Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many people say that music is a universal language. If that's the case, I would like to use music as a platform to talk about health. My name is Dr. Moshe Lewis, and I'm a full-time practicing physician who loves music and the way it affects our brains, our bodies, and our well-being. We'll be discussing topics that affect all of us, from mental health to body image, cancer screening to stroke. Our health is truly our greatest asset. Hopefully, these discussions will improve the health of our community. Welcome to Music and Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Moshe Lewis. I'm excited and delighted to be joined by a black journalistic legend, a scholar in our time. This is Pete Frank Williams, and he has done it all. <laughs> From beginning, <laughs> well, well, almost all, in terms of, I mean, we're talking LA Times, Source Magazine, TMZ, I mean, just step by step to Unsung. I mean, there have been, and now Cop Watch, and you've got even more projects that we're all gonna get into. But I want to try to go back a little bit in time and talk about growing up in Oakland and what it was like, the kind of things you were seeing as the hip-hop community evolved, and you were, you were young, right in the game. Snapper. Well, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. I think the topic of your show, music and medicine, is a really formidable, like a really important topic and a discussion that we need to have, not just for African-Americans, but for people in general. Um, no, man, I think for me, you know, my genesis, before I even got to LA Times or Source, was just growing up in Oakland in the 70s and 80s, I think was really like, it, I think it shaped who I became, my philosophy towards life. Right. How I you know, moved, growing up in a really, you know, you live in the Bay Area now, um, very political, you know, very conscious, um, a little bit street, a little bit raw. I mean, if you, from crack to the Black Panthers, to the Hells Angels, to the uh, Black Power Movement, to even the sexual revolution with a lot of gay situations, to the, you know, Hells Angels. You know, the Bay Area is a really like quirky kind of place. And so I grew up, you know, with dudes selling crack and crazy, you know, brothers trying to help the community. You know what right, I mean? So it was sort time. of a, a clash. And right. so it was, I think that really shaped me. You know, I always say, you know, for when I, my first start really um, in learning how to tell stories was when I was probably like around nine or 10 years old. Um, I had to used to be this kid with these big glasses and a big afro. This is the late 70s, so, you know, right. um, early 80s. And a lot of my dudes in my neighborhood like to try to talk to girls or meet them or whatever and didn't really know how to talk to the girls, right? Because right, right. you hood, you know, exactly. you got your little dope money, right, right, chilling, right, right. you want to pass Tanisha a note. And so it was like, it was like hey, young boy, you don't want to be reading all them books. <laughs> you know, um, you know, what should I say? And I started writing letters right. for homeboys in my neighborhood. That was my first storytelling. <laughs> and it was a paid assignment as well. Because right. so, <laughs> okay. they had cash. Sure, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I got paid to you know, write love letters for these kids. And um, it just started, you know, in high school. was on a high school newspaper. 
you know, I always tell people it doesn't happen out of nowhere. You know, I got, as a kid, I got lost in television and the stories are on TV. And I was like, I know where I'm living, but I can see something else. I always knew that there was something else. So um, in high school, I was a journalist, athlete. And then by the time I got to college, I started writing a very controversial column um, at my school, San Diego State, which I'm actually going back to lectures. It's weird that I'm going back. And so, you know, throughout that, and then once I got to college, I just continued to write. And then ended up going to Columbia Journalism School. And so that's how I ended up in New York City in the early 90s. Sure. Any key inspirations, whether it's Dennis Richmond or somebody that was either on the news or even in a larger sense that was an icon for you when you well, got Well, no, growing up in the Bay Area, obviously in the 70s and 80s, Huey was still relevant. I mean, unfortunately, Felix Mitchell, Mickey Moe, you know, the street legends of my time. As a young person trying to work in television, Belva, you know, Belva was there, Belva Davis. Uh, Dennis Richmond on KTVU. I used to, before I was a journalist, I wanted to be a television reporter. Uh, and so, you know, I wanted to do that. I wanted to work at the Oakland Tribune. All of those places show me locally, you know, about media and, and all of that. So, no, I, I think uh, from a high school newspaper to college newspaper, that sparked something in me. And that's how I ended up uh, in New York when I went to Columbia. And so right. being at Columbia, I got to Columbia in 1990. Three at the height, and you from New York, right? So uh, David Dinkins, key. Rudy Giuliani, Al Sharpton, um, all of the New York City gentrification. It was like the last of the crazy New York '90s and '80s was now right. changing into what you see today, which is right. a gentrified, you know, crazy rich, you know, place. Sure. And were you drawn to New York because of some of those things, or just wow, Columbia was just a, an inspiration? Because that's not something or the type of place that, that everybody gets to go to. Well, no. I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate. When I went to undergrad at San Diego State, like I said, I was writing a column there in the Daily Aztec, the newspaper, but I also was working with the black community. And so when I was a journalist, we thought, I was like, well, I wanted to go to the best journalism school in the world. Right, I mean, I, I mean, no disrespect, <laughs> if you want to go, you exactly. might as well just try to go, exactly. go for the highest. Exactly. And so I was fortunate to get in and uh, that changed my life. I do think right. going to Columbia, I think because of, you know, it's the home of the Pulitzer Prize. Right. It's probably, you know, Pulitzer Prize, Joseph Pulitzer's part of the founding of the school. Right. Uh, Kendrick Lamar won a Pulitzer, you know, a few of my friends. And so uh, I think going to Columbia gave me an education that was out on the streets. It, it's not a very theory-based uh, education, meaning I covered the Rudy Giuliani. I was in the, you know, where the Jewish people are fighting. I was in Harlem where, you know, all of the African vendors really were trying to get them out. So I really, I wasn't reading a book. You know, right. I, worked, I worked at Newsday. I covered Kurt Cobain's murder, you know, the Source Awards in the early 94. So getting all of that and being in New York at that time, I think it just changed my life because I was at the really, they call it the golden era of hip hop. Right. Right. And so um, I always was a hip hop fan. So I just happened to be there at the time when, you know, you're from Brooklyn. Right. I mean, that's, the shit, that's when I had the, uh, the Tim's <laughs> with the, the red and black with the lumberjack. Right, right. So here you are in New York and you're a young cat coming up in the game. And then somehow like it all just it comes together and you're right there in the mix. But how do you make that that leap into actually saying, OK, this is something that I'm definitely going to do a career and then transition back to the West Coast and ultimately connect with Source? Well, no, what happened was when I was at uh, Columbia, I was working at Newsday. I was interning at New York Newsday. I don't know if you know if you just people. Oh, yeah, I remember. New York That's Newsday, so, it's going now. Kind of New York a, Newsday. Right. It was before, yeah, I mean, yeah. before the post kind yeah, of before you know, pushed that. them out. And so I was a reporter there, and uh, that was really great. I, I worked um, in Metro and sort of like uh, a lot of crime. Mm -hmm. And so when I was in school, I applied for this job, like two-year sort of fellowship mm -hmm. called MetPro at the LA Times. They picked mm -hmm. 10 fellowship wow. people from across the country, black, Asian, 
you know, Latino, whatever, LGBTQ. Right. And I happened to get picked. And so it was 10 of us picked from all over the country. And we worked, you know, at the only times. And so I was fortunate. As soon as I graduated from Columbia, I had a job. I mean, I, you know, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, I always say people think, oh, you just showed up and it was good. Or, you know, that's yeah. like the yeah. show. You, they don't know how much we had to set up and get <laughs> right. it right. So exactly. um, I always knew that, you know, since I work in entertainment, you always got to go towards the light and go towards whatever your goal is. Like, say you watch a movie, right? And so there's an ending in that movie. Somebody had to write all of that stuff to get you to right. that ending. Exactly. So if you want to go somewhere or do something, you know, if you want to be a DP, if you want to be a writer, you go, who's the damn best right. DP? Where is the best place I can go write? Right. And so once I, you know, worked at Columbia and LA Times happened, and that changed my life as well. I came to Los Angeles in 1994. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And so um, uh, what happened was the 90s, 94, came around to the times of OJ, um, Death Row Records, right. all of that kind of stuff. Again, I've just been happy to be at the right, right place at the right time. Right. And so I covered Death Row, OJ, uh, post riots in LA, you know, all of the sort of pivotal time where gangster rap was merging with the political South Central kind of culture, you know, Ice T and Death Row and NWA and all of that. And so I think a lot of that shaped, but I was always like the black kid with a lot of white kids in my school. And so, you know, if you know about that, I came from a public school, but later I went to these universities with all of these people. And so I think I always knew that um, as a man of color, you always got to work harder than these people in these situations. And so I knew that, you know, one time, funny story, one time I was at Columbia, and I think it's Al Gore's, Al Gore's daughter uh, was there. And so I had all my uh, grants and all my scholarships should I had to pay my tuition. And I was trying to get it all together. You know, I was working multiple jobs, the library. You know, I had, I was hustling. Like, you know, I don't have any parents. Yeah, my parents uh, never paid one cent. My father never grew up in my life. You know, my mother. She was on drugs, so I was homeless, a 16-year-old kid, and wow. that's you know I don't know how to made it through high school, but I slept in my car, all of that. So I know how to like get my money together. You know I'm a hustler. So and so Al Gore's daughter gets to the line in front of me, and at that time I think Columbia's tuition was it's almost seventeen thousand. I was going to say sixteen. It was like thirty-five. So. Mm -hmm. This is in the nineties, right. so it's probably like almost fifty now, sixty. I'm not sure. And so she uh, pulls out her Amex card and sure. she charges the whole tuition for the whole year. Right. And so just seeing all that kind of stuff, it's just, mm -hmm. you know, I just think that being in the media at that time really, really was a, just a wild time, you know, mm -hmm. Source, mm -hmm. um, LA Times, all of that. It seems hard sometimes, maybe as a writer, you've got to maintain some level of objectivity, but this is a community you come from. And obviously, we see some really hard things. What were some of those challenging stories that you had to sort of write or bring forward, even if they may not have shown the best, the community in the best light? Well, and before, you know, I'll, I'll ask you a question about the source, too, after this, because I want to, you know, it's an interesting story how I got at the source. But, um, you know, I think when I was a reporter at the LA Times, what was deep is that uh, I colored a lot of murders, um, courts, like all kind of things, right? And so I would see one thing about the scene, and then the white editors would change the headlines, and all kind of crazy shit would go on at the news desk. I'm seeing how they're shaping the media that you're reading and watching. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times these aren't people of color, they weren't very sensitive right. to it, you know what I mean? It's just been a really weird thing to see how some of that coverage um, was not right, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, also just like trying the best to tell our real stories. Right. I came at the time when hip hop, like right now you watch hip hop on television, right? You see it on the, the Grammys, you see it on the Emmys, right. totally you something. see it everywhere, it's the number one global thing. I was in the press room, they didn't put no grant, you know, hip hop shit on the right. thing. They barely let us even come to the ceremony. Right. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so I think being able to see how important diversity is and how to 
me being a person of color, I'm more um, conscious about how to talk to people, mm -hmm. you know, and how to get the brother and sister to talk, or even mm -hmm. white people. So I think having people of color learn how to tell our own stories is super duper important because right. we bring a cultural sensitivity to it that you might not ever get, right? And so, uh, and about the source though, so what happened when I was, when, when I was working, um, when I was at Columbia, um, the Source magazine came to Columbia University mm -hmm. in 1994, four, yeah. The Source came to Columbia in 1994 and it had a 50th anniversary issue. It was a 50th anniversary issue, I don't have it here. Damn, I have it somewhere and it's signed. Um, that, they were giving love to Africa Bambata, uh, Grandmaster Flash, and uh, Kuhark. And so when I was in the auditorium, it's so funny, that's, is that the day I met Chuck D? No, I met him before that. But that day, the owner of the source, Dave Mays, was at yeah. Columbia. Right. I mean, I just, I keep telling you, if, if you just, right. if you stay in your place and keep right. going. And so Dave was right there, and the source was the bomb at the time. Sure. The source magazine is, right. come on, that, you know, before y'all got all that shit on TV, <laughs> exactly. the source right, was the right. Bible, sure, exactly. right, in the 90s or whatever. And I was like, hey, yo, Dave, like, you know, I'm a writer. And I have been writing about hip hop in college, but nowhere near the source. And so... I'm like, yo, you should put me down. I ran up on it. You know what I mean? Exactly. We I'm like, hey, what's up? You know, I want to be in the mix. Jump in, jump in. You know, I want to down with the game. And so um, we started talking. He was like, yo, call such and such. And then I started to uh, freelance okay. for them uh, in around 95, yeah. And I just, you know, I was thankful. I was a real, I was a real journalist. I went to Columbia, right. you know, LA Times. So right. these people that have writing for them at the source, I don't know if they had like the real, but I had the real credentials. And so they started to, you know, Give me assignments. My first, I'm actually just celebrating my 25th year, excuse me, just celebrating my 25th year in hip hop because my first article on the source was about AMG and it came out in 1995. Wow. And then a few months later, uh, Easy E died uh, and I covered Eric's death. I knew Eric. And so um, that was a similar moment because I wrote the cover story. And you look back at the 1995 cover story of Eric's death, I wrote. And so I think that sort of like catapulted me. And then I started working with the source a lot. And, you know, work with a lot of record labels. I wrote Dog, Dog Pound's first bio. You know, I covered Snoop's murder trial. Um, and at the source, I just started to be sort of the West Coast dude. And so when they opened up a West Coast office, I became the first West Coast editor of the source. And, you know, this is a long time ago. But, and then just, you know, covered Death Row, interviewed Suge in jail, and Pac's murder, and all kind of bananas, crazy stuff. And so I think at the source, one thing that I liked about being at the source then was that we really were doing an important job. I know people, like, the culture was not being covered like that from an inside-out perspective, not an outside-in, you understand right. what I mean? Sure. People who lived it and breathed it and did it, whatever, and we were telling our stories to the white mainstream right. who didn't understand it. And so even though the source was founded by a white Jewish kid from Harvard, my man Dave Mays, it is from a sort of black, Latino cultural point of view. And so, you know, working at the source, I think you see around me, all of this, I think, is a big part, at least the music part, and the hip-hop and the TV shows and all of that um, come from the source because that's how I know my friends is the show winner at, you know what I mean, different TV shows, or you know what I mean, Empire, yeah. or my boy Selwyn just sold a show, or Mike, Mike Elliott's written all these movies, or Benny right. Boone was on my couch, or, right. you understand what I'm saying? Sure. And that's, that's why right. I still know Snoop. Sure, right. That's why I'm friends with dads, you know what I mean? Right. That's, how it, that's yeah. how it happens, and so uh, that job changed my life, and you know, got me to this place, I think. Amazing. What would you say to somebody young in the game that's trying to sort of more follow your pathway, which is a journalistic 
bent and really sort of tells our story, like you said, from ourselves. What, what are those things that, because they're just things you say, you, you really paired yourself with excellence. You continue to aspire for the best of the best and to try to be the best. How do we sort of keep the young people encouraged to, to do that? You know, I think, uh, and now this sounds like, I know I sound like a Dr. Phil episode, <laughs> a young event, exactly. but um, you can't be a follower. You know, a lot of times you're a young person growing up in urban areas or just with your homies or whatever, you just want to do what's cool or, you know. When I grew up, um, the popular person was the dope dealer. Right. Um, and, you know, there were some smart guys, too. I was thankful to go to a really multicultural high school, but I knew that that was the short term. Right. You know, that's like the short money is what we call it. I knew that there was something more long term than that because they were going to end up dead, in jail or dead. And so, you know, you got to keep your eyes on the prize. And so if you want to be... A dancer, you know, if you want to, like Floyd Mayweather, right, for example, I took from him hard work, dedication. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really drink, he doesn't smoke, he works harder than everybody else, he's up on his craft, he knows what, how much he's paying, he, he, he did the work to become who he is. So, you know, for you as a person, as a young person, I always say, whatever it is you want to do, figure out who's doing it at that level and go towards that, learn from them, hit them up, you know, Reggie Hudlin is a big, I'm um, a big fan of Reggie, so I looked at what Reggie did, my buddy, Jesse Collins or different people or Suzanne DePass who I work with in producing Showtime at the Apollo. And so, you know, it's just like in life. Like, you don't want to be a lot around a lot of mediocre-ass people. Because right. that means probably what? <laughs> right. You would be less than mediocre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's what I'm saying. When you say pursuit of excellence, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I'm a fraternity uh, Alpha Phi Alpha, and one of our things is onward and upward. Mm -hmm. Right? You got to just, 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 you know. And you know, a lot of you know, a lot of what I do is I'm I'm an artist too. So I think that's like, I don't know how to explain that, but I'm just I haven't even gotten to where I want to go yet. Everybody right. else is like, well, look, yeah. look what you did. I'm like, sure. that ain't shit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I know that sounds really weird, mm -hmm. but that's a, that's my truth. Sure. Yeah. But but that's a counterpoint I want to get to. Let's talk a little bit about disappointments and heartache and difficulties because I think people want to believe, oh man, look at the awards, look at what you've done, or anyone, and it's all a path paved to gold, the Lord blesses and everything goes well. Let's talk about when things get difficult and people get down, sort of where you find that inspiration or where you find that drive to press on no matter what. Right, I mean, um, uh, what is it? Is it Langston Hughes, My Life Ain't Been No Christmas right. There? Is that right? Um, life for Me. Life for Me Ain't Been No Christmas There? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think, um, I think we measure success by how much clothes you got or, you know, um, who you know or whatever, what bad girls behind you or whatever guy or car you're driving or whatever. Right. But I think those are somewhat, those are the material parts of it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I grew up in an environment um, that was both beautiful and tragic at the same time, mm -hmm. where there's a lot of black love and unity um, in Oakland, 70s, 80s, whatever. And there's a lot of pain. The birth of crack and drugs and families being decimated. One of them was my own, you know, my mm -hmm. mother. Uh, when I was 14, 15, I got into a dispute with her and ended up living homeless for a year or two and living in my back of my car. And I know what it's like to try to, you know, find somewhere to go shower and fold my clothes right. in the back of the car like right. that and have them for the week. Right. And so, you know, and to take $50 and make that last three or four days, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And so uh, I think understanding that shapes your story. Mm -hmm. And so um, I remember one time when I was in Oakland, I had to be maybe... Oh. 14, 15, and I, um, my mom was living in like a homeless shelter. She had lost her apartment or whatever, and me and my brothers was there, and I had to walk from, uh, and you would know, I had to walk from um, around 65th Village, 69th oh, oh, Village, yeah. right there to almost like where I grew up, sort of like by the lake. I'm from the fun oh, town. Okay. Um, 
doves. And so I had to walk almost like 40, 50 blocks. Right. I just didn't have any money. Like it really was just a, it was a, I could have rolled the bus literally. Right. It would have been like probably then a hundred, a dollar right. fifty. I just didn't have that money. Right. And I promised myself that day that I would never ever be in that situation again. And so, um, you know, you pace, you know, I've had big success. I won awards, I've done this, whatever else. You know, a few years ago, maybe like four years ago, I lost it all. I had a big office, employees, a few contracts fell through. My woman left me. I was literally in the car, like calling a suicide hotline. Like, wow, wow. That's that's even. I wanted to transition to this whole mental health piece because it's so prevalent in our community. And I think when we look at drugs, and you've covered that a lot through different stories for different sources, that's often self-medication. That's what right. we see it as. People trying to. How do you feel you write to or speak to that hurt and that inner place that is okay to ask for help? It's okay to say, we can get so down that life is just not even worth living. Well, you know, again, like I, I, it's, it's unfortunate, but I do believe it's about access, right? Um, I was able to go get counseling. Mm -hmm. I've got counseling multiple times. I've talked mm -hmm. to people, figured out my pain, talked to my family, my relationships. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't have that access. Mm -hmm. You know, two people that I knew, uh, baby Chris, rest in peace, Chris Lighty. Mm -hmm. um, another guy named Shakir Stewart. Chris Lighty was the manager of uh, 50 Cent, Mariah Carey. He started with Violator Records, Mob yeah. Deep. You know what I mean? All of that. He's like right. a seminal person in our culture. I used to see Baby Chris at the tunnel in New York. Um, right. He's from New York, you know what that right. is. Right, right. And so, um, and then another guy named Shakir Stewart, who was an executive at Def Jam, who kind of discovered Rick Ross, Young Jeezy, really helped Beyonce get her legs under her or whatever, you know, these two guys at the top of their game committed suicide. You know, Chris, um, I did a show about both of them, and so Chris was so caught up in what everybody worried about he did, he lost a lot of money, he didn't want to look bad in front of the world, right? Because he couldn't deal, and his family kept asking for money even though he was in pain, you know? And I saw some of his letters that he wrote to his therapist and some of the things, you know, very private. Uh, Chris shot himself as well as Shakir. Chris wrote, I've been taking care of everybody else. Who's taking care of me? Wow. Yeah, right? That's, that's and deep. so he was in so much trauma from that that he had never stopped and realized you don't have to be Superman. You need some help. You know, he just lost it. Shakir got into a situation where he was taking the, whatever the prescription drug, um, blanking on the one, the sleeping right. one, right. and yeah. uh, he was also drinking or whatever, and he had some stress. People threatening him in the music business, and everybody thought he was super successful. Yeah. Shot himself. Yeah. So I think as black men, you got to like have that network, and you got to try to get some help or you could talk to it. You know what I mean? And, and and for me, thinking about Chris, that was that moment. Mm -hmm. Six months now, your whole life can change. You know, I've had hundreds of thousands of dollars in my bank account. Right. I've had twenty. Right. You know what I mean? It's just it's the reality of you know, as fifty say, the game is filled with ups and downs. So I stay on my grind. So you got to like it's. You know, it's very, it's, it's a marathon, bro. It's a marathon. You know, those moments that you have where you're insecure or you're stressed or your woman left you or you lost your business or, you know, if anything, anybody learned from the COVID situation, you know, I lost a lot of money from March to like August, September last year. Like, right, you know, right. I was surviving off an unemployment check, right. which is like, that shit is like a bar bill for right. the way we be moving. Sure. Right. And so, you know, um, I just think that mental health is important in our communities. And I think especially, you know, one of my shows I did, Cop Watch America, which was a reality show about um, police brutality activists in Atlanta, New York, that we shot. A lot of times, law enforcement police, by the way, at least in our communities too, I saw these things. I was rolling around the Bronx, Brooklyn, 
right. Atlanta. I was in the cars with the people watching the police get out of the cars. I'm not right. telling you some shit I've seen on the news. Right, right. So right there. Mental health issues are the biggest thing in domestic violence that police and law enforcement deal with. Right. And they're not equipped to deal with that. Absolutely. They're not sociologists. They don't have, they got, they're conflict oriented. And right. so I'm saying we need to talk about this, especially in my business where music, entertainment, people so caught up in success and looking good and, you know, once or whatever. It. It's just, it's hard. I mean, right. this is, it's, it's a, you put yourself out there in front of the world and if it doesn't go right, it can tear you down. And I just, I just, you know, I'm, people know me know that I, I talk very straight forward about this, your mental health. You gotta get, you gotta be, you gotta be right before you can do anything for anybody, period. You know, and it's okay. It's, you know, it's not gonna always be, Flowery, bro. Right, right. Like your That's jacket. Right. They don't always be sexy like that, like your jacket. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Hey, I'm trying to keep up with you, so nah, you know, I gotta, gotta represent. But you're right, I think that that's a very hard area for our community to accept. We were talking offline and saying it, it's so quick to, you'll hear a label like, oh, that person's crazy, or they're just not right, and things like that. And so we tend to tend to hide. In our community, oh, he crazy. You know, right. Oh, yeah, that's, that's crazy, Tyrone. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that motherfucker, you know, he knows therapy. He just need to go, you know. <laughs> Have a little, what, what is the, uh, the, the Chris uh, uh, Rock thing that you need to take? I forgot what he's saying. The medicine that everybody usually takes. You're just like, sure. our thing is not, we don't sure. diagnose it the right way. We right. just think that that's, you know, keep it moving. And too afraid. And then what are some of the things you've seen sort of successes, maybe some artists you feel like were really able to, to come around or able to sort of get their life more set and, and moving on to that next level despite coming from a dark place and really can, you know, mentally be a little bit more stable? I think to start at the, the bad part of it mm -hmm. is that you saw what happened to X, DMX, right. is that the beauty and the tragedy of his talent was that he was still depressed and he couldn't get past the drugs and his youth. You know, you, know you talk to Earl, every time it, he kept talking about us being a little kid, being lost, he kept talking about, you know, trying to find, and not, you know, from what I know, he like sold like three, in one year, I think DMX sold like six million records or something like that. He put an album out beginning of the year. And then he was like, so the amount of money that he actually had was some, like 20, 30 millions of dollars, right? But he still was unhappy. Chris Lighty made a bunch of money on the vitamin water deal with 50. Right. Gang of money. Lost it all with the, what is the, the Ponzi scheme guy guy just died. Chris right, Lighty right. money with him. Right. So um, I've seen artists have it all. But then you could see like a Snoop who, you know, death row cheated him out of money. People tried to kill him. He was on trial for murder. Exactly. And now Dog is on the uh, Corona commercial, <laughs> selling right, the Taco Bell, right, up there with hanging Martha out with Stewart. Martha Stewart. You know what I mean? Right. Dr. Dre, who mm -hmm. did whatever else crazy stuff, mm -hmm. you know, NWA, lost it all, left Suge, mm -hmm. sold some headphones. Sure. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. And made a grip, grip of money. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Ice Cube did the same thing. I just think that you gotta, you gotta stay at it. And so I think there's a lot of, you know, victories like that. Mm -hmm. And then you can see somebody like, like Suge, who, you know, had it and was trying to be a gangster so bad that it cost them everything, right? And you see everybody who's around him, see them what happened to them. So what you do in your actions, you know, how you treat people and you behave, it can, you know, it, it, it's, it's deep, you know, and a lot of us medicate ourselves in my business, right. you know? Right. You might smoke a little something cool, but you know, like Casey and Jojo. Right. Casey and Jojo, these are drinking out Hennessy cups like coffee every day. Right. That's why you ain't seen them, right? right? Because the drugs and everything is our way of medicating our pain, especially as black men and black women. You know, we take to that because that's our way, you know, but as, uh, you know, rest in peace, my man Keith told me, guru, you know, that, that's, that's, when you do that, the pain is still gonna be over there after you drink that bottle of Hennessy. Right. It ain't gonna make you. And pain. sometimes you can, even you more can't, magnified. You can't just do like this and right, right. Your, your, your problem is over because you drank some drink or smoked. It's, 
Yeah. So, you know, you got to really work. And it's an eternal journey. Like, I'm still working. I'm never going to be, you're never going to be whole. The point is to just continue to do it the best you can and, you know, be smart and, and strong in your ways. And I'm thankful now today, I feel like there's more conversation about mental health in the black community. I think it's more okay to say that I'm not okay. I think social media has helped that. I think that, you know, mainstream media is covering in a way that I think that has really changed the game. Sure. We call the show music and medicine, but sometimes music can also be medicine. So music as medicine. In what type of way do you feel even you or other people can kind of use the music in a way to really sort of help deal with their issues, their challenges, and a lot of times we feel even just self-esteem. Yo, man, like I say, without music, I would not be here. Mm-hmm. I mean, you. I mean, you see my space. I see, you know, obviously whatever I do or whoever I became. But you know, without the music, there's just no way. Uh, uh, when I was a kid, my mom was a young mother, and so she didn't really have a babysitter that much, and so she was a really little young hot girl. They wanted to go see Parliament, Fun with the Cadillac. They wanted to go see Stevie Wonder, Teddy Pendergrass, or whatever, and they wanted to go to a little bar and hang out. So I went and saw those things. I saw the spaceship land in the Coliseum. I saw Teddy Pendergrass and the women throwing underwear. I sat in the Jew Junk joint where my uncles and them were trying to get some ladies and I see what song they put on to do it. I use music to tell stories. And even though I don't rap or sing, I've been there the whole thing because I tell the stories about the people who rap or sing, right? And so, you know, music is our, I just did a whole show on Unsung called Music and the Movement. It was a show we did. That show is a hit because people love the story of our musicians. They tell our stories. They, right. you know, my mom, whenever she was dealing with some issues for some Negro, she's <laughs> up playing Aretha Franklin on right. Saturday morning, right. trying to clean the house right. and do whatever else. Right. You know what I'm saying? We right. riding out of East Oakland. Right. We got too short. You know what right. I'm saying? Freddie B or we got E40. We we, we feeling good. Right. You know what right. I mean? And so music um, charts and helps our, our lives and our development and our good and our bad moments. And so, and for me, without the music, I would have never been here. And I think, you know, from a lot of my friends who are musicians, especially hip-hop, I think hip-hop became one of the first times, other than jazz maybe, where we didn't, there was no filter. We created it, we took our own stories, it came out of nobody listening to us. Right. No opportunities, we didn't have instruments, right? So we made our own thing, which is taking some old-ass records that we had, talking over it, a guy first talking at a party, and then he started making a whole song, and then somebody produced it, and somebody put an album out, and then somebody bought a label. You understand what I'm saying? So, without the music, brother, there's no me. Definitely. I understand. And then, just sort of in closing, let's talk about some of the things you're doing now, a couple of projects that you're working on, and and where you are hoping to go on this meteoric rise. Hey, man, I'm I'm still in the streets selling dimes and nicks, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) If you need that, I got it. I got it. And I mean, I got some socks in the back of the car, some old E40 CDs. No, no, I mean, that's, I, I, that's some people from Iowa are not going to know what you're talking about. But, <laughs> but that's the thing. That's the one mentality. Uh, no, uh, more recently, I think I said the music in the movement. I'm doing a, a hip hop mystery series with a big network. Uh, I'm doing another true crime series for a series for a network that's about telling the stories of marginalized communities of cases where the media didn't treat it right. That's what a big major media portal, who's the producer of that. And I have my office here, Profit From Entertainment. Um, I produce a lot of content on my own. Um, I produce a digital series for Viacom called Who Said That Shit, which is coming out in July. Six, it's like hip hop trivia. And so I'm blessed, I shot it here, edited here, did that, you know. Um, I just shot a series called Rebels With A Cause that aired on BET Digital, which was a, a series about 
sort of unorthodox orthodox social activist. Mm. And so that was a four-part thing. You know, a, a big part of where I'm going now is I'm like a guy who stays one foot in the white mainstream America and, you know, works with them and does that. And I speak their language and have their papers that they like right. to see, exactly. all of that, the the background, the credits and all of that. Right. But also here, I'm like, I'm shooting my own thing. I'm hiring people of color. I got young cats like him sure. working. I'm trying to give us our opportunities and not, I, don't, I ain't begging for shit. Sure. Yeah, we don't do that. Right. We got so um, that's where I'm at. I want to be able to control Jesse Collins, myself, Ricky Hughes, whoever, you know what I mean, James DeBose. So that's where my head is at, to be able to control our content from ideation to shooting to delivery, whatever. And so uh, I'm gonna continue to do that. I got a big show with Teddy Riley uh, coming out, Buster Rhymes, also doing his documentary. Uh, and so, man, I'm just moving, man. Very, very just focused and. I'm just thankful. I'm thankful I'm even having this conversation yeah. with you. Hey, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm delighted. Yeah. No, I'm it's good. I mean, I could have, you know, I could have been still on your TV <laughs> in 1991. Right. You, know, right. you know what I mean? You're right. like, what's going on? <laughs> exactly. I need my TV. I want to go out with this um, because I think so many things you said are so inspirational. Just starting your day, how you may get your mind right. Because, as you said, mental health is so important for us to be able to talk about. You know, you've got a big shoot, you've got a big schedule, big meeting. How do you just sort of maybe get in that zone so that you can be able to brush the dirt off your shoulder? Well, I think exercise is big. I try to start the day off with some type of health uh, workout or, you know, in the pandemic, I did Tybo and weights in my room. You know, there was no gym to go to, so I made a gym. Right. So, um, and I have the best ideas when I'm working out or I'm running or I'm doing something. I feel just like, you know, if after you work out, you feel like you got stressed, that you got a problem. Like, because you're just supposed to, like, Whatever. And I also, I write a lot of notes about things that I'm going to do. Like, I'm a very, like, um, I think because I was a reporter, I know what it's like to sit at my desk at 4.30 and write a 2,000-word story, and it has to be in the newspaper tomorrow. Huh. There's no, like, <laughs> I'm going to get up like, and come back, right, sorry, smoke a hell, and have a drink, right? And so I think when you start your day, you should be like, well, what do I need to get done here? What's my intention for the day? I was with one of my dudes in Oakland yesterday. And we were talking about, I'm having a birthday party, and we were talking about being intentional. Yeah. And we were talking about how, like for instance, in my event that I was gonna do, I was looking for a black um, photo booth person. That's how I can go spend some money with some black people. Right. I need a photo booth person, sure. let me go find a black person. I wanted to go work for this one company, and I ended up seeing the body I know and followed up with him. This was something like seven months ago. That same company ended up calling me the other day. People I was sure. on the phone with this week, so you gotta like, you have to put what you want out into the universe. Mm -hmm. What do you want to do? Right, what's it gonna be? What, what, what is it exactly that you wanna do with your life? Your right. time, your day today? Right. How do you get over there? Is there a map? Is there, what, what is the, what is the, you know? And so I think that you gotta like go towards whatever it is you want. You can't be like, well damn, maybe I could go over there and just skip and <laughs> hope it'll happen. Right. You understand what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, and I, and I think it's very important to know where you wanna go and start your day off with intentions. You know, today, after I finish with you guys, I'm about to go be on a boat with some of my homeboys, and my intention is not to be uh, doing that. My intention is some other shit. But I handled this business before, so I got to that. Exactly. You know what I mean? And so, you know, just handle your business, and, you know, I'm blessed. I play hard. I work hard. Sure. I love it. I'm your host, Dr. Moshe Lewis. This is Music and Medicine. It has been a delight to spend some time with you and get to be in your studio and, and we're going to do the Walk of Fame. We have to. But... 
Clearly, mental health is so important in our community and something that can easily be overlooked or forgotten. And the roots of it can sow in our lives at a very young age. And then unfortunately, even despite success and fame, really come to be a snare or a vine. It chokes the very success that we work so hard to get. So bottom line is it, let's keep it real. You don't need to front, you don't need to floss, you don't need to be out there trying to be all that somebody else thinks you need to be and then try to support the whole community on one paycheck. <laughs> you know, so let's certainly get that mental health, start that day right, really put yourself in the right place. And another key piece that he gave us was be willing to exercise, eat right, eat healthy, and live and your I, best I, let life. Let me say this real quick before we get off of this, yeah. right here before, I'm gonna tell you a quick story. <laughs> okay. And uh, you know, this is a love story, sure. so I know people are gonna be like, you being mean or negative. Right. So I produce a show, Unsung, like I said, I produce this episode about Nate Dogg, <laughs> RIP uh, Nate. And uh, Nate's a beautiful uh, individual, great, funny, crazy dude. Nate used to go up to death row with a gun in each pocket, <laughs> um, real life. And so Nate uh, loved Hennessy. <laughs> And he really loved it. You have to watch the episode, it's, it's in there. And so Nate loved fried chicken in Hennessy, right? And so everywhere Nate goes in a limo, goes over there, it's like a fifth here, a pint here, and whatever. And so Nate had a stroke, and you know, I do believe that what he ate and what he drank played a part in that. And so Nate is in the hospital, and uh, this, is, this is only a story that I was told by Snoop Dogg. And so Snoop and his wife go to visit uh, Nate, and they're heartbroken. This is Snoop's best friend. When Snoop is in, uh, high school, he uses Nate's car to drive to the prom because he didn't have a prom car, right? This is like your boy. And so his boy is basically debilitated. And he, I don't think he was as sick as he got later, but still in the room, he had a bottle of Hennessy, a little fit. Right. And Snoop is like, I think he said, he was like, I still see you got your favorite girl with you, right? And so after that, Dog was saying, you know, his wife, Shantae, was like, you know, you don't really see Snoop drinking that much, right? He may drink wine or something like that, but he doesn't drink like that because he saw that happen to his friend. So where he may smoke or whatever, but I'm saying you gotta change what you do, what you put in your body. It has an effect on you. I just told you somebody you love and right. know, and the alcoholism more than likely causes death, right? Gil Scott Heron, people, whatever. So, you know, this, what you put in there, it, it, it makes a difference. I believe it. Last word, you heard it with Frank Williams. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. And the P stands for? Positive Frank. That's right. Thanks so much. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic.
Electricast. Electricast.